Evening, brothers and sisters. I'm pleased to have a seat. Well, tonight we're beginning our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which we were supposed to start last week, uh, but because of the events of Sri Lanka, we uh, had a different sermon last week. So tonight we're doing Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Can I get you to turn with me, please, to page 661 of the Church Bibles? Page 661. And Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, can I also ask if you wouldn't mind turning in your white bulletin to the center page? You will see a sermon outline there. It's a bit detailed outline, uh, but don't worry, we actually go through it quite quickly. All right? So you see lots of words there, but we actually move quickly through it. Uh, so, uh, most importantly, page 661, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read and sung. Uh, and we pray now that you, uh, by your Spirit, uh, speak to us as we uh, consider this passage together. Uh, we ask that your Spirit would uh, help me uh, to be able to preach your Word uh, clearly and faithfully uh, and in a way that glorifies Jesus. Uh, we pray that your Spirit would work in each one of our hearts, uh, helping us to understand what you're saying to us here. Uh, and, and pointing us to Christ, uh, that we might appreciate him and love him uh, and live to serve and please him. And so we commit this time to you, Father, asking for your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything is meaningless. Who knows that the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Don't be overly righteous. Or make yourself too wise? Why should you destroy yourself? You don't expect those kind of statements in the Bible, do you? But they are there in the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we make of this book? How is this ancient book of wisdom relevant to the life of the KL Christian in 2019? Well, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, and that includes Ecclesiastes. And the basic principles for interpreting Ecclesiastes, the same basic principles for interpreting any other part of the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture, all of Scripture points to Christ, we read Ecclesiastes when we read each part of the book in the context of the whole book, and we read the whole book in the context of the entire Bible. And we've got to keep on asking, how does this book point us to Jesus and the gospel? Now, if we're going to do that, it'd be good for us to grasp the big picture of the book before looking at the details. And that's what we're looking at today. We start by thinking of the author of Ecclesiastes. Now, on the one hand, we know the divine author is God, the Holy Spirit. But we also know that the Spirit used human authors to write the scriptures. So who are the human authors? Well, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1 that these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In chapter 116, we read that he had great wisdom, uh, surpassing everyone in Jerusalem before him. In chapter 2, verse 7 to 9, we see he had great possessions, more than anyone else before him in Jerusalem. And if we went on to chapter 12, verse 9, we would see that he was wise, teaching and studying, arranging Proverbs with great care. Well, we have to say that this preacher is King Solomon, son of David, way back a thousand years before Christ. 
But it doesn't mean that Solomon wrote the whole book. Uh, there is an ultimate unity to the book because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. But in terms of human author, we hear two voices. If you read chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, you see that the preacher is spoken of in the third person, as if he's someone else. I look at, for example, in verse 2. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Someone is writing about the preacher, Solomon, and then telling us what he says. Right, we'll call this guy the frame narrator. But in verse 12 onwards, we hear the preacher's voice himself. Uh, verse 12 says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Do you see that? Uh, that's the voice we hear throughout the book until we get to chapter 12, verse 8, where the frame narrator starts talking about the preacher again. And he uses exactly those same words in chapter 12, verse 8. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And then he continues on. And there's one little exception, though. In the middle of the book, we'll come to one day, in chapter 7, verse 27, where again we hear the words, says the preacher, which helps us to realize that the frame narrator is still there. Now, he is packaging Solomon's wisdom for us under the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand it and benefit from it. He is God's authorized and inspired interpreter of the preacher. And so to kick off the series, we're going to look at the direct words of the frame narrator, especially at the start, but also at the end. This frame narrator starts with the big theme of the book. Look at it again in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now the word vanity translates the Hebrew word hadel. And the word literally means breath or wind, or vapor. It could mean something that's unsubstantial, profitless, empty, meaningless, fleeting, transitory, brief, unbeneficial, enigmatic, perplexing, or, or many of them at the same time. And when the preacher says vanity of vanities, he means it's extremely vanity, extremely meaningless, or extremely futile. Like when you hear holy of holies, right, that's the most holy place. Vanity of vanities is utterly vain. The other phrase that keeps cropping up is in verse 3. Uh, we meet it the first time as under the sun. And he keeps on talking about life under the sun. Now, some people say that life under the sun is life without God. But actually, if you read on through Ecclesiastes, you see God is there in the preacher's thinking when he's considering life under the sun. What isn't there is the gospel. What isn't there is the resurrection. What isn't there is the life of the world to come. Now, the preacher doesn't deny the gospel. He doesn't deny the resurrection or the life to come. He just hasn't got there yet. Because remember, God didn't reveal everything about everything all at once. God revealed his plans and purposes step by step. And at this point in salvation history, he had not revealed about the future resurrection, even though there were hints of it. So life under the sun is life when you don't know whether or not, and to quote Ecclesiastes, the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. It's not saying there's no resurrection, it's just not thinking about the Easter hope. 
Life under the sun is just this life when considered alone, without reference to the life to come. Life under the sun is this life when all you look at it, all you look at in the fallen world is this life full stop. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher's going to look at life under the sun from all different angles, trying to make sense of it. And we'll keep on seeing it as Habel. Which is not surprising, is it? Because as Christians, we know that we are living outside the garden. Back in Genesis 3, when we sinned against God, we were expelled from the Garden of Eden, where we were God's people in God's place, under God's blessing and rule. And instead, God put us and the whole creation under curse. God has consigned everything to futility, Romans 8 tells us, as part of that punishment for our rebellion against Him. And that is exactly what the frame narrator tells us the preacher finds when he looks at life under the sun. And he elaborates on it in the rest of our passage for today. He starts by asking a big question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? You know, I bet we have all asked that question at some time or other. What's the point of all this work? Sometimes we just ask because we're stressed out or because we're fed up with the boss. But the preacher here is thinking more profoundly than that. What use is there ultimately of all the work people do? I wake up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I check Facebook, I go to sleep so I can wake up in the morning and go to work and come home and check Facebook and go to sleep and get up. Or, if you're Malaysian, I feed myself so I have energy to work so I can buy delicious food so that I can feed myself so I can work so that I have energy so I can buy delicious food. Life is hard and then you die. Or you might be thinking, it's different if you've got children. Really? You work hard, you raise the kids, and then you die, and they work hard and raise the kids, and they die, and they work hard. and ra- What's the point of that? It's like you learn in school. Remember the, the life cycle of the frog? Frog lays eggs, egg becomes tadpole, tadpoles become frogs, frogs lays eggs, eggs become... It's round and round and round. The only difference is you and I are part of that cycle. The cycle of generations. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Ah. But then when you look at the earth, what happens in nature, actually there you see endless repetition. The sun rises, verse 5. The sun goes down. Hastens to the place where it rises. Round and round. The wind, verse 6, blows to the south, goes round to the north, and around and around goes the wind on its circuits the wind returns, still going round and round. The water cycle as well in verse 7, the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full because the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. It just goes round and round. There's lots and lots of activity, sun rising, wind blowing, streams flowing, but actually it's all going nowhere, fast. And all this meaningless activity can be very tiring. Verse 8 says, all things are full of weariness, A man cannot utter it. Because, you see, you never get to the point of completion. With your sight, you you never get to the point where, ah, I'm satisfied, I've seen. Never get to the point where you've heard enough that, ah, I'm happy, that I'm satisfied with my hearing. The eye, it says, is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
seeing and hearing don't actually satisfy you. They just help you to live longer in the meaningless world so you can see more and hear more. Never get to the end of it. Just keeps going. What has been, verse 9, is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The world under the sun is going nowhere. And the preacher issues a challenge. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which you said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Hang on, hang on, hang on. A baby is new. Ah, how many generations of babies have come before? Okay. Avengers Endgame is new. But actually, people have been telling superhero stories since time immemorial. Smartphone is new. People have always made toys or tools to make their vain life more productive or fun. And what use in the end anyway? Because whatever you do, be quickly forgotten. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You see, you cycle on, you labor, you toil. You know what? Actually, no one's going to remember you. Sorry, lah. No matter how much we are liked or disliked, 100 years' time, no one's going to remember any one of us in this room. And in a thousand years' time, even the most famous person in the world, who's the most famous person? Is it Donald Trump? Or Vladimir Putin? Or one of the guys? Whatever. It's just going to uh, simply going to be a, a, an entry in some history book that no one ever reads except the night before exams. Right? If they're lucky. Because let's face it, uh, even if you were Donald Trump and you thought people might remember you, actually, what good would it be? In a thousand times, it's just a name. They won't know you. And the rest of us won't even have that. I'm sure you can pay money and get a nice tombstone, and how long is that going to last? I think the cemeteries are still going to be nicely maintained in 3,000 years' time. Where are the cemeteries from 3,000 years ago? Time of the preacher. Don't leave a legacy. It can be remembered by your children. If you're lucky, your grandchildren. How many of you know the life of your great 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 grandfather? Face it, your, your legacy will be lost in just a few generations, which is actually just like that when you consider the age of the earth. The preacher's right. There's, there's no remembrance. So why bother? What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? It's all vanity, havel, meaningless, fleeting, temporary. Anyway. If you go to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, it actually finishes with that same theme of vanity that it starts with. Go back to, we'll go to the end now. Come with me to chapter 12, verse 8, where the frame narrator starts back again. Chapter 12, verse 8, the frame narrator starts back again, and he's still quoting the preacher after going through 12 chapters of the preacher. What does he conclude? Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So, What's the frame narrator's conclusion there? Now go down to the last paragraph, verse 13. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
do your duty to God, your creator, while you live. You go, hang on. Why should I bother if everything is meaningless? Why should I bother if I'm just part of this endless cycle and, and no, one, no one's going to remember anyway? Well, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the last word. You see, the frame narrator, following the preacher who actually speaks about judgment in chapter 11, we'll get to eventually, says, if you, if you broaden your perspective just a little bit, take a little bit of life, beyond life under the sun, and you get a bigger picture. Yes, life is going nowhere in cycles, but it's not just, just going nowhere in cycles. In the bigger scheme of things, you step back and you see a bigger reality, and that's in the end, God will bring everything that you and I do into judgment. Even if no one remembers you, no one recalls your name, God does. And the things that you do, the things that I do, Every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be brought by him to judgment. And friends, if that is the case, then what we do in this life actually does matter. Life under the sun is vanity, art of vanity, until you take judgment into account. Many people try to get rid of the idea that God judges people because they don't like the idea of being judged. But friends, judgment is the only thing that gives meaning to what would otherwise be a meaningless life. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is going to drive us to the conviction that God will bring everything to judgment. But it is still very vague. We're not told how or when the judgment will come. We're not told the outcome of the judgment. We're not told what the rewards or the punishments are. We're not told there's any hope for us beyond the judgment. All that would await further revelation that will continue through the prophets of the Old Testament and ultimately through Christ and His resurrection from the dead. You see, Ecclesiastes, written so many years before Christ, just gives us part of the story. But with the coming of Jesus, we get the full picture. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And that's true until Jesus came. God became man, the incarnation. That was something completely new. God has never become man before. His death on the cross to take the punishment for sin, that was new. There have been pictures and types and shadows. Never before has the sin of the world been atoned for. And his resurrection from the dead, well, that was new. Jesus is the first to be raised immortal. The first of many. And in the end, He will bring in the new creation. A creation without Havel. Which brings us back to Romans 8. Remember how in Romans 8 we were told that creation was subjected to futility? Well, look at it again on the screen. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. In other words, when God subjected everything to vanity, he did it with a plan. It's not going to be like this forever. 
Creation is waiting, longing for the day when it will be set free from Havel, when the children of God will be seen for who they really are. And we look forward to that day. And God has assured us that that day will come by raising His Son from the dead. That's why it's so important we read Ecclesiastes in light of Easter. My fellow believers, as we wait, we participate in that day to come by living for Jesus today. Living for Jesus is not meaningless. Because since Jesus rose from the dead, then we will rise as well. There will be more to our story than life under the sun. We are part of God's kingdom that lasts forever. And if that is true, and if there is a new creation on the one hand, and, a heaven, and hell on the other, and those two things are realities, then what we do for this eternal kingdom has eternal value. Now, we will still do many things that are vanity as we live in this world. That's inevitable. There's nothing wrong with those things, they're just, but they just have hell. But when you share the gospel with someone, whenever you help your brother or sister persevere in the faith, whenever you do anything at all, giving a cup of cold water or a bulletin to someone for the sake of the kingdom, that is not meaningless. It's all part of helping someone to come to know Jesus or to persevere in Jesus who alone can save them from hell and give them eternal life in his glorious kingdom. And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When I was a kid, I used to go for piano lessons in the home of an old lady from St. Christopher's Church in Jobaro. Those lessons were in vain because I never learned to play the piano. But I still remember on the wall of her house, she had this plaque, and it said this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's right, isn't it? As we look at our lives, let's prioritize that which will last. Let's prioritize the kingdom. Oh, people who haven't seen Avengers Endgame have been carefully avoiding spoilers. Uh, I kind of spoiled the suspense of Ecclesiastes for you by taking you right to the end. Right? Uh, but sorry, well, actually, I'm not really sorry because we need to see the wood before looking at the trees. But don't worry, there's lots more to Ecclesiastes than what I've told you. There is much wisdom here from God about living in this world uh, that has been subjected to futility uh, because we are living in the Havel world, aren't we? Uh, and so there's much wisdom about living in that. Remember, because we're, we're living in the overlap of the ages, right? If you look in the diagram, we see uh, this age, well, it goes on now and it only ends when, the, when Jesus Christ comes again. Uh, but the age to come... Well, that started with Jesus' death and resurrection, and that goes on forever. And where are we now? Well, we're in the overlap. On the one hand, we're part of the age to come. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're reigning with Him. We've got God's Spirit. We've got God's eternal life. We have full of meaning and purpose in our life. We serve God and His kingdom. 
And at the same time, we're still in this age. Still in KL, still struggle with sin, still going round and round those cycles of life, still waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And over the next few months, as we look at Ecclesiastes, we'll learn much practical wisdom about how to live in this Havel world, even though we belong to the day to come. Now, so far I've been talking to my fellow believers, but let me finish by addressing anyone here who is not yet following the Lord Jesus. It may be until now you've been thinking about life just in an under-the-sun kind of way. But tonight, as we've looked at Ecclesiastes, you can see the Bible's wisdom. Apart from judgment, life is simply meaningless. If there's no judgment, then you may as well just do anything you like and then die, or just, just die. It doesn't matter anyway. But tonight you've heard that actually God does judge. And if God does judge, then life does have meaning. What we do does matter. And yet if God does judge, then you and I are in trouble because we haven't treated God properly and we haven't treated other people properly. If God does judge, then we would be on the wrong side of that judgment. And because of our sin, we would be headed for eternal destruction. But the solution to that problem is not to put our head back in the sand and go back to adopting a you know, life a perspective on life that's just under the sun, S-U-N. God has got a far better solution. He sent his own son, S-O-N, to die on the cross to pay the punishment for our sins. And he raised him from the dead as Lord of all. Believing in Jesus not only frees you from a life of meaninglessness, it brings you forgiveness from the very judgment that makes things matter. And following and serving Jesus gives you purpose to life that only He, as the resurrected Lord, can validly give. So turn away from sin and come to Jesus. Be forgiven through His death. Receive Him as your King. And join the rest of us as we work for that kingdom. Because the work we do for him and his kingdom really does count for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you raised your son from death that first Easter so that we can be confident that life under the sun is not all there is. Thank you that you will bring all things to judgment. And thank you that in this world of vanity we can find true meaning in serving you. Please give us a proper perspective on the things of this life. Please help us not to try to find our meaning and purpose from things that are habel, but please help us to make it our priority, our goal, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.